Leadership is the art of giving people a platform for spreading ideas that work. Welcome to DC Local Leaders, the podcast where we talk to C-suite leaders within the DC area. Our guests share their pathways to success and the important moments that impacted their careers. Lean in as we get the inside scoop on how they are shaping their industries, how they lead, manage, and connect with others. From the sectors of aerospace, defense, tech, IT, and more, this is Local Leaders. Your host has been making meaningful connections with industry leaders for over 15 years. Here's Philip Nathrum. Welcome back to the DC Local Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Nathram, and thank you so much for spending some time with us today. If it's your first time here, we share messages of leadership development, mindset, personal growth, human performance, fear, ego, how to deal with those human attributes, those things that affect us on a daily basis. We go find those messages from executive leaders, C-suite leaders, high performers. We bring you those messages so that we can all learn together. These are actual real human beings that you can connect with and make a mentor out of. So we're excited to have you on board. Please remember to subscribe wherever you happen to be listening so you don't miss any of these great messages. Come find me on LinkedIn. We're on Instagram. We're also now on YouTube. Our motto is to continue getting 1% better one day at a time. We're onboarding sponsors. We're leveling up our production quality. We're building out that YouTube page and we're excited to have you on board. Please remember to come find us, subscribe, make sure you hit the notifications. Don't miss out on any of the messages. Things are changing and we want you on board. This episode is sponsored by Leashes of Valor. One leash saves two lives. Leashes of Valor is working hard to bring service dogs and post 9-11 veterans together in order to enrich both lives. They're a nonprofit founded by veterans right here in Northern Virginia. Check out their website, leashesofvalor.org. There you'll find warrior stories, opportunities to donate. You can shop their merchandise, which all goes to supporting their cause. We're excited to have their support and to support them in everything that they do. Check out leashesofvalor.org. Today's episode is sponsored by PenFed. They've got great rates for everyone. For more than 85 years, PenFed Credit Union has offered great rates on loans, checking, and savings, serving our military and local communities. PenFed is open to everyone. Helping their members save is how they grow. Go to PenFed.org to see how you can save more with their best-in-class rates, products, and services. PenFed. They've got great rates for everyone. Today's episode is with Scott Soup Campbell a decorated fighter pilot who successfully commanded at multiple levels in the United States Air Force. He served as the installation commander for a 10,000-acre base with over 11,000 airmen, civilians, and contractors, 34 mission partners, and $50 billion in assets. He's also both a graduate and a former instructor of the prestigious Air Force weapons school known as Top Gun. A major part of our conversation today is just understanding our personal awareness and what that can actually do for us as we want to grow in our lives, whether it's in our careers or just in our personal life. Any leader looking to push through some barriers can take away a lot from our conversation. We talked about how he would often look to those that are well junior than him for advice because they are not biased by experience. And so they will give him an honest account. And he had to be open-minded enough to take that advice. So he's just got a lot of nuggets in here as he talks about what it was like to transition and all of the lessons he learned both in the cockpit and now coaching others with victory strategies. So I'm really excited to share his episode with us today. And let's get into the episode. Yeah, well, Scott Soup Campbell, thank you so much for joining us here at the DC Local Leaders Podcast. You bet. Great to be with you. Appreciate it. People might remember uh, the last name. We've had Kim on. Kim is your wife as well. Both fighter pilots. You actually retired from military service a few years ago. 
and she yep, just about retired. a year, year and a half ago for me. And then, yeah, she just retired here a few months ago. Yeah. Now soup, is that directly because it's like Campbell's soup or is there another story behind that? No, I wish, I wish I could tell you that there was some cool story behind it. And, you know, with fighter pilots, generally speaking, it's either something to do with your name or something usually stupid you did in the airplane. And thankfully uh, I did nothing stupid enough that uh, guys already were calling me that, you know, probably since my time at the Academy. And uh, so it just, it kind of stuck around. Well, now that you've been out, you're an executive coach with Victory Strategies. Yep. Were you doing coaching while you were within the military as well with the United States uh, Air Force Academy? Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where uh, I've, I've worked with a guy who was writing a dissertation for his PhD on this topic. And it was funny when we got in, we launched into this interview and he had asked me at the time, he's like, well, how long have you been coaching? And I was like, well, I guess technically for six months. And he's like, no, come on, man. He's like, you know, you've been a commander at all levels and you've been an instructor pilot for, you know, I, I've been an instructor or was an instructor for uh, over 20 years. And he's like, you know, so he's like, take the definition out of pure context. And so, you know, I, I look at it pretty much from the time I graduated from fighter weapon school, which is air force top gun, you know, which is where we really try to develop, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and, and misconstruing what happens there, but, you know, yes, we are trying to make the best pilots in the world better, but really what it's about is making better leaders out of them. And so I think from that point forward, so realistically, I've been mentoring as a leader in coaching, which is part of it for, you know, well over two decades. And then now I've been doing it as a, you know, as a job, if you would, um, for about, you know, a year and a half. I, I started right, right as, uh, as I transitioned out of the military and it was a, it was a good fit for me and I thoroughly enjoy it. I mean, I, it's, um, I get probably as much out of it as the coaching clients do. So I, I couldn't ask for a better job, uh, you know, in, in retirement. Yeah. Why did you, why did you join the air force specifically? Do you come from a military family and then beyond that, why the air force and not army, Navy, <laughs> Coast Guard? Um, I, uh, I have no military background in my family. My dad was drafted and was, a, went to Vietnam um, as an enlisted infantryman, uh, and then finished his tour and, and, and separated from the army. And so that, that was it. So I wouldn't say it was any kind of family influence. Um, but I did, I don't know exactly why, but I got the bug, uh, to be a pilot, a fighter pilot early on. I'd be lying if I didn't say top gun came out in some formative years of mine, you know, um, yeah. You know, how old were you when that movie came out? Uh, I was 13, I believe. So, all right. Uh, you know, right in the heart of the envelope is if you look at where, you know, we know <clears throat> almost scientifically that the seven to 14 year um, span or age range is really where you're going to hook somebody to get them to want to fly. It's the reality. And so, right about the same time, I had joined Civil Air Patrol. Uh, the Air Force Auxiliary, um, and they have a cadet program starting from age, I believe it's 13, 12 or 13 on up. And so you learn a lot about the Air Force through that program, but then also they give you opportunities to fly. They have a, um, an orientation program for flying. 
And then later I had eventually uh, was selected to go to a, a solo encampment one summer where I got uh, all the way up into solo in a Cessna 172. So, um, but early on, I decided that I want to be a fighter pilot. I asked a few questions. What I quickly figured out was a way to go was to go to the Air Force Academy. So pretty much told my guidance counselor, according to my mom, that uh, in seventh grade, I told her that I was going to go to the Air Force Academy, be an aeronautical engineer and become a fighter pilot. And I got two out of three. The engineer thing didn't work out. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the Air Force Academy, I mean, that's, I think, only 11% of the people that apply get in, right? There's some statistic that's pretty low. Yeah, it's so that already that. by its, Yeah, that's already an accomplishment. That's, you know, did, um, did your parents, you know, were they concerned about your military, going to the military, anything like that? Did they, would they have preferred you to be a doctor or a lawyer? I mean, that was the message. I <laughs> no, my dad loved it. <clears throat> um, but my mom, I think, was ambivalent. Uh, I think maybe it was attractive, the idea that she wasn't going to pay for college, um, you know, with me going to the academy. But, I mean, I, I don't think, you know, especially stereotypically speaking, you know, it's the Air Force. So I, I, <clears throat> I don't think she looked at it as something where, you know, like with my dad, you know, being in Vietnam as an infantry guy, machine gunner, you know, that kind of danger, you know, it's the Air Force, you know. And so... I think later on, it was a little eye-opening, especially, you know, probably post 9-11 in particular. Um, you know, I was deploying before that, but, you know, we were doing no-fly zone in Iraq. And I, I don't think she really thought of it, you know, thought too much about it. So I, I don't I don't think yeah. he either. I mean, my dad loved it. So, I mean, especially as a ground pounder, uh, he loved that I was going to go be a you know fighter pilot, especially when I ended up flying the A-10 in particular. So what kept you in the Air Force and in military as a career and furthering your education with the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, National War College and those sort of things? What was it that was appealing about that to keep you in? I think initially was the mission um, as a A-10 pilot is you know, doing close air support. Um, to me, there's just nothing more rewarding than helping our troops on the ground. And it just, you know, I'm obviously biased, but I don't think there's a better mission on the planet, especially for an aviator, um, to be called in to do close air support and, and assist them. Um, so that was probably the initial part, you know, thinking more tactically as a pilot. Why did I like being a pilot? I mean, let's face it, they're paying you to fly a fighter jet, in my case, a, a giant cannon with an airplane strapped to it. And, and that by itself is just right. amazing. But I think as I went on further in my career um, and started entering into command positions, um, it was all about the people. Um, in, in this case, not the people of the mission, but the people you worked with and worked for. And I truly enjoyed leading airmen and, you know, being to engage with them and to help them and to, you know, help them realize what they wanted to do. So, for me, it, you know, it, it morphed over time for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, in the end, you know, I definitely stayed around in the, in the later years, um, for, for that reason, for the airmen. And, uh, it was, yeah. it was truly a joy to, to be, to lead them. I mean, it, it just was amazing. It was amazing to be around them every day. Yeah. I mean, so that gets back to your point that you've been coaching and you've been helping people achieve, 
I guess, what would you say coaching actually is? What's your definition of what coaching is? Is it achieving things that like breaking through limiting beliefs or achieving their own goals or even finding out what their goals are? It's a, it's a combination of things. And a lot of times, you know, at Victory Strategies, we have a very different approach than a lot of, of companies that do coaching. We don't, we don't have a hard and fast you know, curriculum, if you would. We, we don't use that word on purpose. We, it's very customizable. And, and I look at my clients and I use different approaches and we work on different things. Um, and it's based on what they're trying to get out of it. And that's really what it comes to. And so in some cases, you know, a lot of them are already leaders. You know, I'm not teaching them to be a leader. They're leaders in their own right. What they're trying to do is be better. And so a lot of times what I really, when I try to distill it, what's common across the board is I try to get them to think differently. And so, you know, I challenge them a lot. Um, so you know, if they're coming at a problem set, you know, I kind of give them the what if. I'm I'm almost a red team, if you would, where where I'm I'm trying to poke holes in some of their stuff when I challenge them. Uh, I do will I will challenge their beliefs um, in some cases with regards to why do you think that? Um, you know, how did you get to that? Uh, have you thought about coming at it a different direction? And so for me, it's just a constant. There's a lot of questioning when it comes to the coaching space. Um, you know, I think you'll find that across the board um, in any you know certification process you find out there. But um, a lot of it is just you know you got to build that rapport, understand them. You know, you have to build that, uh, and it's this is what's common to what I've been doing with with young airmen, for example, or subordinate leaders, which is you have to build an environment of trust so that when you do go at them and challenge them, they're comfortable in that space. They don't go defensive shields up, but they're willing to be vulnerable. When you, so what do you do for yourself though, to be able to be the coach, you've got to be coached, I think, right? Do you have mentors in your life or do you have an active coach? I want to get into maybe some of the things that you do on a daily basis, journaling. Talk to me, like, what is it that you're doing to get to be this person? Um, I, I have plenty of mentors. Um, so many of the mentors I had, um, when I was still active duty, uh, I still uh, have them today. Um, you know, I'm pretty fortunate to have uh, just on, on literally on the street we live on uh, a number of senior retired officers who I get to pick their brains whenever whenever I bump into them on the street. Um, but uh, I so I do have a network of of mentors out there. Some of them are peers. Some of them are seniors. Um, and so a lot of that is just bouncing things off of them, having conversations. Um, I think the other thing is my clients in a lot of cases challenge me. And so, uh, I have one client in particular, who's just a voracious reader and I'm the guy who can be halfway through 10 books at a time, all the time. I, I am not a finisher in that regard. And that's one of the things that he's made me better in that. You know, it's constantly, it's like, I'm reading, like he will burn and through, you know, he's a senior vice president and he's burning through books a week. And I'm like, how do you do this? And so it's challenged me to be better because, you know, it helps me have a better conversation with him. Um, and, and they're good. They're good books that challenge your thought process. They, you know, make you think differently. They make you try to be better in different respects of your life. And so, 
those are the big things I do. Um, you know, I've never gone away from competitive nature. You know, the um, a few of my teammates at Victory Strategies, Strategies are former Navy SEALs, and we're we share a fitness app together. So I gotta keep up with those guys, you know, because I'll feel otherwise. Like if I'm not, you know, everybody's looking at each other's workouts. You know, it's a it's a great method where we hold each other accountable without saying a word. Um, are you, so do you do a thing? A lot of leaders have shared with me, like every year they put something on the calendar, whether it's a sensory ride or a triathlon, or they do something like that to keep themselves continuously training for something. Is that something that you practice or any kind of PT that you learn from the military? Um, I, I don't, I don't do an annual, um, from time to time, um, it'll end up in my lap through somebody going, Hey, let's go do this. And normally I'd probably be like, Oh, that doesn't sound very fun. Like I've done a few tough mutters and, uh, the seals do a swim every year across the Hudson in August, um, to commemorate, um, the shoot down of extortion 17, which was a, uh, an MH 47 in Afghanistan years ago, um, full of seals. And so they swim across the Hudson, which needless to say is not appealing. Um, especially if you're not a seal, you know, they love that stuff. I don't, um, you know, but it'll be things like that. Like, Hey, you know, they'll throw it on my calendar for me. And then there's that peer pressure. But for me, it's, um, I'm more of a, uh, um, personal pace record. Like I'm a, I'm a big runner. So I constantly, my greatest enemy and challenger is my watch. Um, so, uh, but then recently I got a Peloton. So that's another thing, you know, you get the leaderboard. So, you know, I, I mean, I have plenty of stuff that motivates me, so I don't need, um, but I'm cognizant that there's great value in it. And so while I don't do that annual thing that I train for, I'm constantly looking at my pace. Am I staying up to speed? Am I, am I still, you know, and then, and then I will use those things, even if I don't consciously subconsciously I'm staring at the leaderboard. I'm like, yeah. I need to finish in the top third or the top quarter or whatever, or, or, you know, whatever I did yesterday needs to be better today. Yeah. 1% better every day. You, right? you know, I was talking to some other people earlier today and he is a recently transitioned. Uh, he was out of the army, but he talked about how he's in a group with other military folks who also have recently transitioned. And Part of the challenge is that they don't necessarily know how many transferable skills they actually have sometimes. Like these were special operations guys. And I was just curious as to how many of your clients are, are transitioning military or, you know, what advice can you give to someone who's in that position where it's like, look, you don't have to go chase the next certification for PMP and all these other technical skills to prove that you're good enough. And it blows my mind. The reason why this stuck out to me is it blows my mind because like, I'm just a normal person and I suffer with that, but it kind of makes sense that I would, that I'd feel like not enough. And that I constantly, you know, I have that gnawing feeling, those limiting beliefs that I talk about all the time that constantly have to work in the opposite of, and it takes effort and, and journaling and all these things. But I wouldn't have thought that a military person would have had that because they, are so regimented in the training and you guys work in the opposite of fear. You're flying a plane that's only about a hundred yards off the ground. I can see you like it's not that's fear and you're able to do it and do it anyway. 
So I wouldn't have thought that you'd go into a job interview and feel like you're less than or not enough. Do you deal with that? We, we don't deal with it in our line of work per se. Um, as far as clients, our clients are private sector um, and, and in the business world, but we do like, for example, we have an alignment um, with the honor foundation. Uh, Victory strategies does mainly because the, the group that really got the company going and our founder is a former Navy SEAL himself who transitioned. Um, and, you know, and a lot of them understand the value of it. And I've worked with the honor foundation as a mentor. And then, uh, on the other side of the house, literally, uh, my wife, Kim sits on the board for the special operators transition foundation. And both organizations are very similar in nature, which is they're high, high end. So the military has a transition assistance program, but you know, it's, it's very hard when you have a program that is built for, is supposed to be built for everybody. It's built for the kid who maybe struggled in the military and is getting, you know, kicked out and the 30 year senior officer. Well, that's kind of a spectrum, right? And whereas, so the honor foundation and special operations transition, special operators transition foundation programs like that really focus and go deep um, to help our vets transitioning understand that they have these skills and that they have to stop looking at it through a very literal lens. So, you know, if you think about a lot of the guys I work with now were, who are her former seals, you know, in my parlance as an aviator, we call them door kickers, right? Like, you know, they run around long guns, kicking doors down, getting bad guys. And, you know, so when you think about it, like, well, where does that translate? You know, and, and so for a pilot, it's a little easier, right? Okay, I'll go fly the, you know, red, white, and blue school bus, you know, with pick your favorite airline on the side or FedEx. Um, but th- that's not it, right? Like that's like, and we, we have to help them. And, and the, what those programs are really good at is they don't bring in other they will bring in some former military members to say, Hey, I transitioned. This is what I learned in the process, but they also bring in, um, uh, headhunters, fortune 500, execs to tell them, look, we are looking for you. You have an incredible skill set that the average civilian who came out of Harvard, Caltech, you know, like you name your school with an incredible resume, haven't had, you know, those experiences and haven't really lived through, you know, some of the adversity um, and, you know, name it, but also it's that leadership experience. And, and that's another thing that they often look over is, you know, well, I, you know, if I was never a commander, well, you know, lead yourself, lead your team, lead others. And they, you know, you have had that experience, you know, you've been in positions of maybe not official command, but you've been a unofficial or official leader in some other capacity and you have those skills. Yeah. I mean, that's program management. That's PMP right there. You know, and I think there seems to be a little bit of, um, you know, enlisted versus some of the officers and, and when they come out, they sort of almost carry that rank with them into, into the private industry where, I relate it to just like all of us that we can, that's, you know, we have these limiting beliefs. They're real, but not true. We, they're real and we believe them and we feel them, but they're not true. And, and I just, you know, I thought I'd put that out there because I bet in your coaching, 
you know, how many of these leaders deal with that all the time? That sort of, you know, we coined it imposter syndrome or just feeling like, you know, I'm an entrepreneur and now this company requires a CEO. What do I do? Because maybe that's not me and how to get out of that line of thinking, you know? Yeah. And I think it's, it's, but it's also the, you know, it, there's, so one of the things that special operators in particular struggle with, and it's my experience having ridden through an entire program with them to see it real time is, you know, this, the silent professional side of things, right. Where, where, you know, you have to tell them there's a point at which you need to set your humility aside a little bit, because when you're interviewing for a job, now is not time to downplay your skills. I mean, like, you know, like, the, the guy you're up against or gal you're up against is going to do their best sell job on what, what their experience brings to the table and why you want to hire them. Like you have to do the same. And I know it's uncomfortable space, but you have to get in there and explain what skills you have, what you've done and speak up about it and realize, no, you got this. You have incredible skills and maybe you haven't even thought about it in this respect. But now is not the time to do the aw shucks. You know, I'm just, I'm just, a, you know, just one of the guys just did my job. You know, it's like, no, you know, you got to come in there and say, this is what I did. This what makes me a unique. And this is why you need me. Yeah. I mean, humility is, humility is one of those words. It, you know, it's, it's an accurate self-appraisal, but to be accurate, sometimes we need to come up. A little bit. It's not always kind of tamping. Like, you know, the person that walks into a room and says, I'm the greatest person in the world has a lack of humility. But the person that walks into a room and says, you know, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm nobody. You shouldn't really pay attention to me also has a lack of humility. Right. And there's there's you've got to find that quiet confidence. Right. And so it's it's, you know, and it's built for the situation like an interview is different. Right. I mean, in an interview like you, you are trying to get in the door. So now is not the time to be, you know, a you know shriveled up little flower you need to lean in um but you know once you get into the you know because that is a challenge where you know and i've heard this and i've pontificated on linkedin about it and i and there are different opinions about it but um you alluded to the you know bringing your rank along with you when you separate or you retire and i do believe there's that's there's some peril in that because of the humility side because you know, I've had a few friends who've been told, well, you know, it's the, you're overqualified. You know, we didn't hire you because, well, everybody was feeling uncomfortable. Like you were going to drive the whole team to work harder. And it was an interesting statement. And it was a good friend of mine who shared this with me. And I was like, really? I go, well, then that's not a company you'd want to be with anyway. And yeah. Isn't that a good thing? Well, you would think, but, but that's, but it's an interesting, so it, it got a conversation kicked off because I just kind of threw it out there for, you know, as raw meat on a post one day just to get some of my other thoughts, just because I'm like, am I looking at this wrong? Because I'm like, to me, I'm like, well, then I don't want to be part of that organization. Like, Hey dude, slow down, you know, row slower. Like this is the, the pace around here is, is average. You know, <laughs> we don't do above average. And, and it was, you know, and, and then Somebody, somebody popped in one of my connections, popped in and just said, Hey, you know, this is a real problem. Like that military guys and gals will sometimes transition and they can't lose that, like just full speed all the time on 24 seven. And it's a, it can be a turnoff and you need, 
And so we got an interesting conversation going on conformity. And, you know, which I don't, I don't agree with. We agreed to disagree on that point. Um, as far as when we were going back and forth on this post, I just said, uh, you know, I, I, my take is you, then you found some, you got to find an organization that is aligned with your values. And so if it's not, then that's not the right fit. You don't conform. Like you don't, con- in, in that respect, I agree that you have yeah. to recognize when you step into an organization, that organization has a certain culture, assuming it's a positive one that you want to, you want to, you know, flow into that culture. Hopefully you can continue to improve it as well, but you can't come in and just, you know, be knocking everything over and, you know, bull in a China closet right from the get go. Right. I mean, so I do see the point, but you know, I also, you know, it's, I look at it from a leader's perspective that when you step into a new organization as a leader, the last thing anybody wants is for you on day one, you know, to just clean the table off and be like, okay, the old guy's out of here. Here's how we're doing business. No, I mean, if, if you're good at what you do, you're going to sit back. You've probably already done your homework, but you're going to sit back for four to six weeks and you're going to, you're just going to observe and you're going to listen and you're going to take things in. You're going to watch how all the animals behave in their natural environment without you disturbing it. And you're going to take notice and you're going to make some, you know, get some ideas on what the culture's like and what's good, what's bad, what needs to change. And then you're going to start slowly bringing yourself in to making those adjustments and not try to do it overnight because that just induces chaos. Yeah. Well, you mentioned like making sure that something aligns with what you want and your values. How do you determine what that is if you're not sure? Like if you are transitioning out of the military or even just graduated from school, just a normal person looking to make a change. Um, one of the best things I heard was actually when I was um, riding along with the Honor Foundation with the cohort. Um, and one night they were having a presentation um, from a private sector leader on exactly this topic. And like, how do you find what's right for you? Like, cause you know, that's what another struggle. It's, it's funny that a lot of them are like, oh, I need to get into the outdoor, like, you know, they want to go back into their wheelhouse. Like I need to be in like the outdoor fitness equipment business. It's like not everybody can go there. Okay. Like you, it, again, they pigeonhole themselves in a lot of cases. And what, but one of the things he said was like, when you're, you have to do your due diligence, don't just look at what the company does, figure out what the company stands for and what the culture is like. And he said, you can get there somewhat by asking somebody who currently works there. He's like the best person to find is a person who recently left and find out why. Like, and it doesn't necessarily mean they left for bad reasons. They, they may have had a new, you know, a new opportunity come forward, but somebody who was recently with the company and moved on is a good person to go, Hey, what was, what was it like? What was, what was your decision to leave? And he's like, that's a good data point to figure out what the company's about. And, you know, I think another thing that works well is, you know, the, the honor foundation uses this technique called cup of coffee and it's, you know, the just connecting with people. And we, we use it in our team when we have a prospective team member, um, usually one of the managing directors below the CEO and our, our, our president will just have an hour conversation. And, and it's an alignment check. It's just, uh, you know, 
it's there's no format to it. There's no topics ahead of time, no formal questions, just a conversation. And a lot of that helps us on both sides because we've had in some cases, you know, prospective teammates are like, nah, this, this really isn't a fit for, for what I want to do or, or where I want to go. And, and that's okay. Um, but uh, I think it's an important thing because, you know, I've had a lot of, of friends transition and you, you know, you have to choose your priorities and, you know, the, the, again, another pr- great presenter. I mean, I learned so much. I mean, I was already transitioned and, and when I volunteered with the honor foundation, it was such a great, I got so much out of it. And they brought the first night, like I learned more in the first night than unfortunately than my entire air force transition assistance program. And the guy came in, he said, Hey, there's five things that you should consider for where, you, what you want to do as you transition. He's like, so you need to look at these factors, live where I work, love what I do, love who I work with, control my schedule and make lots of money. He's like, pick three. And that like quickly you go, Whoa, okay. Right. And cause I will tell you that a number of my friends, you know, looked at the make lots of money. Right. And, uh, I've had numerous conversations with some of them who making lots of money and miserable doing it. And, you know, and, and so I, th- I thought that was a very good way of putting and, and he really kind of focused everybody by saying, you know, you, and, and it's, it's arguable. You can only do three. I'd argue I'm, I got four out of five. So, um, but, but you have to, you, you know, you have to, you have to prioritize, you know, you, you just have this wealth of knowledge and I'd, I'd be interested to, to hear like how much of that is like directly due to your experience flying in the Air Force, right? Like what are, I want to really get some of those lessons that you've learned being in the cockpit that you get to share with everybody. It translates. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's funny cause I'm in the process of working on a book with um, my way back when I was a young first Lieutenant. So this was like, you know, 1997, 98. Um, my, I was assigned, it was a, Additional duty. I was a battalion air liaison officer for the 82nd Airborne. So I was an A 10 fighter pilot, but I was also assigned across the way at Pope Air Force Base to a battalion with the 82nd Airborne. And so I had these, there was a team of three, me and then my two enlisted guys. One was the ROMAD, which is the radio maintainer and op- operator maintainer and driver. And then the JTAC, the, back then they were ETACs, enlisted terminal attack controller, who's the the young enlisted airman who's calling in airstrikes. Um, and so that was our job was we would, you know, help this unit. So anyhow, he and I stayed close through our entire career. So he was a young three striper. I was a young first Lieutenant. And later on as a full Colonel, I was trying to hire him as my wing command chief. Uh, and so we've been working on this whole, a book on communicating um, in the whole, the whole backdrop of it is how we would call in airstrikes as a team, like me as a fighter pilot and him as a JTAC on the ground. And, and it, it was amazing at first when he proposed this idea, I'm like, how am I going to make a book out of this? And it turned out that, holy cow, there is so much material. And I use a lot of it in some of the deliveries I do in, in our leadership development training and some of the speeches I give. Um, it's very centered on what I did as a pilot, you know, how, 
how do you prioritize, aviate, navigate, communicate? So you got to fly the airplane first, <laughs> you know, first and foremost, like you said, especially when you're hundred feet off the ground, you got to fly the airplane first. Um, because if you get distracted, there's a high penalty. Um, so like, that's the thing that we, but we pound that into guys because it, it brings them back to the basics that like when things start falling apart, aviate, navigate, communicate, fly the airplane first, put it where it needs to go, then talk on the radio. And, but those are life lessons. Um, you know, like we talk about how we compartmentalize. So I have more face magnets in my cockpit with more data coming in. So like just sucking me into all these displays and all this information that's pouring into my cockpit. And I've got three radios all going off at the same time. I've got an eyepiece over my eye that is just full of information, you know, and, and I've got to decide what's important right now. And, you know, and so I've got to compartmentalize tasks and then I have to compartmentalize life because life happens. And when things are going sideways in the house or one of my kids is really sick and I'm on the schedule to fly, I got to go do my job and I have to leave that on the ground. I cannot be dwelling on it because I'm going to be distracted from a very dangerous, you know, task I have to fly a multi-million dollar airplane and put weapons on the ground close to good guys. And so it's those kind of things, you know, you know, it's, you know, as I used to say to guys, you know, in the jet, especially in a single seat fighter, there's nobody there to take the controls. Like you gotta, you gotta handle your business. And if something goes wrong, you cannot let it snowball. Like you've got to move on. And, you know, and I would, I could tell with, you know, especially when I was an instructor pilot, you know, we would call it a helmet fire. So when the guy up front is completely, you can tell he's not talking on the radio. Everybody's out of formation. Like he is so consumed in the cockpit. He's overwhelmed, completely task saturated. We would call it, he's having a helmet fire. And one of the things that I used to say, I'm like, breathe through your nose, dude. And, you know, it's like, and we have a saying, you know, or not a saying, but it's what you do in the airplane. Like when, like you're not feeling right or whatever, it's called gang load, which means you slam all the switches forward on your oxygen panel, which forces a hundred percent oxygen through your mask to kind of like, okay, clear your mind. Right. And, and so all those things in my mind, just like the very basics of, you know, of flying a fighter, you know, taught me just all these life lessons and then I could apply them in leadership. Yeah. I mean that bringing that oxygen in, that just brings you back center. Like you're present. There's nothing else you're doing, but breathing at that point even though you have all these other things going. But so how did you train for that? Like short of joining the air force and becoming a fighter pilot, how do we learn those skills to compartmentalize that many things or even multiple things? Like what is, I mean, is it journaling? Is it meditating? What can we be doing? I, I, you know, I'm one of those guys I don't do either. um, But I do, I think, you know, I think a lot. Um, and what I think one of the skills that I learn and I use, and it's a, it's an everyday skill and it, um, but it has this aura about it because it's very much associated with fighter pilots, but how we debrief and we're very meticulous about debriefing a sortie a mission, which is, you know, we come back and especially like when I was an instructor at the fighter weapons school, you know, you could debrief a two hour sortie for 
eight hours and it can be painful, but the whole idea is, is you just, and you can do it every day and every little thing you do, which is I'm going to identify my debrief focus point. So what is the thing I want to get better at or learn from? And I go, okay, this thing happened today that didn't go right. Didn't go as planned. Didn't go as well as I wanted. Cause the, one of the big things about fighter pilots that, you know, a lot of people think that we're overwhelmingly negative. Like, like we focus on the negative and I'm like, well, because, okay, we'll, we'll say that went well, but we're not going to spend all day high five and doing a good game. We're going to like, we take note of the fact that that work that went well, repeat next time in a similar scenario. But the learning really comes with examining what didn't go right. And that's where we spend our effort. And so I look at that and go, okay, what is we want to get after? We need to figure out why this went poorly. And we list out what are all the contributing factors in hopes of identifying a root cause. And then once I know what the root cause is, then I go, what's the instructional fix? Meaning, what do I correct? How do I correct this so not to repeat the same mistake again? And what's the lesson learned? What's the takeaway from today's event that didn't go as well as I wanted to? And you can do that in anything, like an engagement with somebody. You know, like, I'm going to try to sell you something today, Philip, and you're like completely not listening to a word I said, right? Like, you're like, we're done in the elevator for my proverbial speech falls flat. You're like, see you, dude. Nice talking to you. And, and I got to figure that out. Like, you know, I can't just go, well, I'll try it again next time. No, I'm not going to be better that way. And so finding those things. And so for me, it's a, it's almost, it's almost a borderline obsession is like this and living and being married to another fighter pilot. It makes it even more of an issue in this house, but like, but that's it. Like you get the fighter pilot debrief from each other all the time, which is, you know, very direct and to the point, but nobody takes it personal. Like you're in a, a space of trust when you have that exchange. And the idea is, Hey, you might not have been aware of this, but you did this today. Ooh, okay. Now I'm going to either talk it out and debrief or I need to debrief it up here. But I think that that's a big piece of how do you get better at things each day? Is that, and so is that like an inventory? Like as an individual, would you suggest like, here's an inventory of all the things when you're looking at what didn't go well, how do you list that out? Right. I mean, well, I think, I I think that like, you know, the starting point might be just like, what did you walk away from today? Not feeling good about. And then why? And then you start down. I'm a why guy. Well, I'm like, you know, I've now been punished with two kids who are why kids, but you know, um, but, but it's don't, you know, you got to go more than an inch deep and you can't just blame it. You know, I used to call it rocking my shoes, sun in my eye syndrome. Right. It's like, I have a rock in my shoe or the sun was in my eye. Like, i.e., it's not my fault. Oh. Right. And so that's what I would say to somebody who immediately would come in and like, I could tell is not going to accept responsibility. I'd be, and they knew it was not going to go well. If I said, okay, copy rocking your shoe, sun in your eye. And they're like, Oh no. And like, yes, that's, that's what I'm hearing right now. And so, so I think that there's, you know, you have to be true to yourself and, and really express a desire to improve. And so, First is identifying those things like what, you know, for me, it's like, but I think if really where you start, it starts with emotional intelligence, which is overused. Self-awareness is what I much more uh, prefer. But if you take inventory and say, 
like, you know, and you can do any number of strength finders out there, you know, assessments, you name it, or just take a personal inventory and, or, you know, find that peer or friend or trusted mentor and work through with them. Somebody who's going to like, will hit you in the face with a two by four, like, you know, clear your mind, prepare to copy. This is coming in hot and it's going to hurt, you know, but like, what is it that I need to work on? What is it that like me, I still to this day, as aware as I've been of it for decades, I am a poor listener and, you know, a like active listener. And so I have to be aware all the time that as you're talking, I'm not formulating my response. Like I'm listening. I'm actually listening and hearing what you're saying. And then ideally I'll digest, pause, and then respond. But that's a challenge for me. I know it. And so like one of the things that I do is anytime I'm in a group setting conversation is when I come out of it, I'm like, okay, did I, how much did I talk? How much did I listen? Did I over dominate the conversation? Like I usually do. Did I talk over anybody? And it's little things like that, but you have to start with, okay, what's, what am I working on? And, and it can be overwhelming. You can't work on too many things at once, but you can pick something and then you can force yourself into an into an arena or a scenario where you can work you can walk into it going okay today i'm walking into this situation it could be a dinner party it could be you know for me it's like our cadets are coming over that we sponsor from the air force academy for dinner tonight okay tonight's goal is not to dominate the conversation let my wife talk uh you know things like that and you know it's not it's not rocket science but um, but you just have to be committed to it. But I think if you start with that and have a real honest and you got to figure out, like if you can't, you know, if you're the person who's like, man, I sat down and I took inventory and I can't find any weaknesses. Okay, well, there's your first one. <laughs> right. Yeah. You've got to have a right sizing of the ego and a willingness to, to want to be better or to realize that we, I mean, we can all improve. Right. I think it, it ego, it's a human, it's a human trait. You're not a bad person. Right. But that's just something that we all have to be aware of. And like you said, if you're thinking that like, I'm fine, like, why would I need to, to change? It's probably like, you're probably the one that needs to change the most or needs the most help. Well, and it's one of my teammates. Yeah. So he, he uses a saying, which I love. And it's a twofold say is like, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And he goes, and then, on the other side of it, if you walk into the room and after 90 seconds, you haven't figured out who the idiot in the room is, it's probably you. And so, <laughs> you know, but it just goes to that self-awareness, self-improvement, you know, yin yang of, you know, you just have, you, but you have to be brutally honest with yourself. And that's, I think, you know, that's the aspect of my upbringing as a fighter pilot, you know, and the thing that, that I, I probably bring in the, the, not the most, but it's one of my heavy tools in coaching, which is teaching this methodology in bet in like for leaders to build better teams. And the, you know, the fighter pilot debrief, you check your rank and your ego at the door. And when you go into that room, everybody has an equal say, and it is brutal, like brutally honest, because we don't have time to tiptoe around things and, and, you know, try to, you know, candy coat. No, there's none of that. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to hurt. If you're the one, you better own it. Um, and, 
But what you find is that it just creates an incredibly high performing organization when everybody's bought into that methodology and that culture. And so like when, but, but as the leader, you have to nurture and own it too. So like when I go into the debrief, you know, when I was a wing commander, you know, I'm in charge of, you know, the entire installation of 11,000 people. It doesn't change the, you know, it cannot change the dynamics of the debrief when we go in there. Yes. I'm a 3000 hour, hour fighter weapon school instructor does not mean I don't screw up. And so one of the greatest things is, is like to be able to sit in a room as the wing commander and have a Lieutenant call you out. Like, and, and your only thing you can do at that moment is applaud them and, and uphold them for doing that because that's awesome. And like, like, and, and because then they believe, right. Then they see it in that, that I'm going to own it and be like, yep, you're right. I was, I was out of parameters there. I should have, I should have aborted good call. And, uh, you know, I'm going to, they're going to see me own it, but they're going to also see that, that it is true that everybody has a voice in that, in that team. And that, because one of the things I talk about with senior leaders all the time is those younger voices, they have an advantage. You don't, which is they lack experience bias. Okay, they, they haven't always done it that way. They don't know what the normal approach to things are. They're going to sit there and go, why did we do it that way? And like, you're like, what do you mean why? This is how we do things around here. And they don't know that, right? And so you can get, you know, this, this doesn't just go with youth, right? This goes with inexperience. So when you bring somebody new into your organization, man, you need to tap into that. That's a resource. Like that's somebody coming in with a set of, with no blinders. And when they start asking you questions about your organization, you should listen. That's yeah. I love that. Uh, that they're, they're a resource. And I guess you're also creating an, an atmosphere of psychological safety that you own up to the mistakes that you make. So they are at that point way more likely to ask questions and to even speak up about things that they may see that are, not necessarily incorrect, but they may have a different suggestion that if you didn't do that, they'd be less likely to do that. And you'd miss out on a great opportunity for change or to do something better. Right. I mean, and that's it is, you know, the, if, if you don't have that environment, then, then those ideas aren't going to come out. So when you talk about, you know, a, a huge overused again, term in today's day and age is innovation, you know, innovation, innovation, everybody's all about innovation. A lot of that comes from those, people with lack of experience because innovation does not come from the upper end. Sorry, it doesn't. Okay. That's usually where the people who are most entrenched in the way they do things and have the hardest time dealing with change live. It's down in the trenches is where those ideas come from. And that's why I used to, I used to tell my senior non-commissioned officers and my mid-range leaders, I'd warn them that every, every six weeks, um, a new group of airmen would come the the group of airmen, brand new airmen who came out of basic training in their tech school. When they show up to their first base, they go through this uh, first term airman center, which kind of teaches them the ropes of living in the dorms and going to the chow hall, all the basics of being a young airman. And um, yeah, just the basic rules of the road and how to, how to get through life. Think of it as orientation for like a couple of weeks, right? One of the things they get early on is they get, an hour in at least it in my wing with me and my command chief. And we kind of deliver them some priorities 
expectations and some thoughts. And one of the things I charged them with was this whole notion of ask why. And don't, because I told them, I said, there are two things that just drive me crazy. The number one thing is somebody saying, because that's the way we've always done it. That is nails on a chalkboard to me. And, and it begs a question as soon as that's the answer. Or, you know, and, and the other side of it is if somebody asks you and you're like, I don't know. Okay. Both of those should induce a feedback loop. And so I told them that like, as you're going through and you're learning things, if it doesn't make sense, speak up and, and ask the question. It, don't worry. It, we know you're a young, young kid and therefore you don't know. And you're, you know, it may be a dumb question. I said, but you need to ask it because guess what? A lot of times those dumb questions unearth dumb practices. And because then all of a sudden everybody's like, that's a good question. Why do we do that? Like, that's kind of outdated or that makes no sense that that's in that order. And, and, but I would warn the leadership team, hey, guess what? I tell every one of these brand new airmen, they're going to be like, why, 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 why? I go, get ready for it. Because I want everybody thinking through those questions because that's how we're going to get the innovation because we're going to look at how we're doing things and think about, is there a better way? Should we still be doing this? We've been doing it this way for 20 years. The airplanes changed a lot in 20 years. Why are we still doing this? You know, and sometimes there is a reason and everybody works better at it when they know what it is. And so there's no downside to answering the why question, but those, those young folks, and I say young folks. Okay. So for us, it's mostly young folks because, but inexperienced, think of it that way in an organization, inexperienced folks asking questions is a very healthy thing. If you look at it through the right lens. Yeah, and you, you actually, so you sponsor some young cadets too. So you have people that you're constantly in contact with that are of that age group or of that experience level that you get to interact with. What's that like? And you know, what does that do for you? It's fun. It keeps you, you know, it, it keeps you grounded and, and it keeps you in touch with, you know, it, it helps me from being the get off my lawn guy. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, you, you get a lot of that from, and I was fortunate to, you know, spend my last two years on active duty at the Academy to finish up there and, and teaching and, and being a flight instructor and, and, and getting to interact. But, but yeah, besides, you know, we have our Academy cadets. I still work up at the Academy as a, as a senior mentor. And it's, it's awesome because just like I do as a coach and teaching leaders to think differently that's what they do for me. Like, like I get to listen to them and hear them just think through things and, and talk about things. In some cases, it's like, it's great because we can, we can, both Kim and I can share our experiences and, and kind of, you know, you know, sometimes temper their fears of, or their anxiety about, you know, what life is going to be like. And, um, you know, maybe set expectations, but also give them things that I wish I knew going in, you know, like, you know, the, this is very important. This is not, you know, you need to focus on this. So, but it's, it's awesome. I mean, they, they challenge us. It's great. We have some incredible conversation. I mean, they're so smart. Um, you know, they're, they're so tuned into everything. They can, they can hit you up on, you know, name your geopolitical topic, uh, or technology issue. And they're so, 
well read into it and aware. And so, yeah, it's, it's great. It's, um, and it's great. It's a great to have them as role models for our kids, um, to have somebody that age, you know, that they can interact with and they love it. Yeah. Do your kids bring up anything about wanting to join the air force or your military experience or just your experience being who you are as a coach and everything you're doing, uh, wearing off on, on them or do they have those conversations with you at all? You know, it was, it was funny early on. It was, um, I used to say that they were almost, um, they were spoiled and a little bit, um, numb to it because they were so immersed. Like they didn't re- like they were too young to realize that like not every kid gets to go walk around on a fighter jet flight line. Cause like dad owns the base, you know, like it's just like, it, like it just, you know, and so like, we lived on base, you know, there's just fighter jets overhead all day long. And because of, you know, being the wing commander, Hey, you know, let's go out. This cool thing has happened and I can walk out on the flight line wherever I want to go. And, you know, like, you know, and, and it just, to them, it was just like, Oh, ho-hum, you know, like, Hey, you know, let's go hang out with the Thunderbirds at the air show. You know, like for them, it was just like, Oh, this is normal. It's like, no, it's not. But so for them at first, it was just like no interest whatsoever. And then, now, as they've gotten older, um, our 13-year-old is interested um, in the academy, in flying, uh, just just started checking out Civil Air Patrol. So he's he's definitely starting to get a bug. And then we don't know where this came from, but our younger one walks around the house fully decked out in West Point gear um, and has said he's... He has declared uh, about a year ago, he declared that he is going to West Point and is going to be special forces, which um, I don't know where that came from. But, uh, you know, nevertheless, we will nurture whatever they want to do. And, uh, you know, a few of my uh, Navy SEAL buddies have tried to make a run at him and convince him to go to Annapolis and be a SEAL. And that that's better than being Green Beret. But, you know, right now he's not buying it. <laughs> well, listen, there's one question that I ask everybody that's been on the show. Um, and it's a question. So I call it the jumping off point. And what I mean by that is a moment in time, and it could be personally, professionally, military experience, currently now working with people, whatever, just a moment in time where you can no longer continue doing what you're doing, but you're uncertain as to what to do next. You don't know, like you're unsure of what the next move is. And a lot of people have described it as being, at the time, something that was painful, either emotionally or physically or both. And at the time, they would have told you it was the worst thing in the world. They didn't want it to be happening. And now they look back and they're truly grateful for it, that they wouldn't change a single thing, that they look back on that as being the moment that they wouldn't be who they are or have the relationships they have or be in the career that they're in or be in the place that they're in or know someone that has made an impact in their life if that situation ever happened. Is there anything that sticks out to you in your life that, I mean, for me, it's, um, you know, I think, I think for me, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't painful. There was nothing acute per se about it, but, um, but it did really change. Uh, and I say, I'll use the R our O U R term, not me, because it was really a, 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 a moment for both Kim and I, but, um, when we were at Nellis um, and I was teaching at the weapons school and she was in test, um, you know, we're two year groups apart and in the air force, you know, the 
you know, you hear this with military guys all the time, you know, if the military one, you have a wife or military one, you have a family, they would have issued you one, you know, it's kind of a, it's a joke, but you know, jokes are all grounded in a certain element of truth. And, you know, the air force typically, especially with officers does not look at you as a entity. They look at you as individuals and they manage your careers that way. And so it was a point at which they said, Hey, it's time for you to go to school. And I knew that based on your groups and timing, Kim wasn't eligible. And so I was like, well, I don't want to go right now. I want to go next year. And and there were all a million reasons why that could happen. Like they needed instructors. There was no need for me to immediately go. I could wait a year and be fine. And, you know, I got a lot of this, you know, well, this is the right time for your career. And I'm like, noted, it's not the right time for my life. And, um, and they were like, noted, we don't care. And we, I kind of got into a little bit of a pissing match with the personnel folks. And, you know, but luckily I was smart enough that I had not taken the bonus. So they offer a bonus for pilots at the end of your pilot training commitment to, to get you to stay on, um, you know, that it's a monetary bonus, but it comes with a service commitment. And so I wanted to keep my, I, I knew that this thing could happen. And so I passed on the bonus to keep my options open. And so they were like, well, we're going to give you that assignment. I go, and I'm going to turn it down. Like if you guys didn't do your homework, I didn't take the bonus. I can, I can walk. And I go, and I've got any number of international guard and reserve units ready to pick me up. So if you want to play chicken, you're going to lose. And, but I, I didn't want to go that route. It was still going to cause problems because my wife was still had an active duty service commitment, but that was like when I really saw good leadership and that this was a moment for me as a leader, like what I saw then was something that I took forward for the rest of my career and was like the cornerstone of what I did for my airmen, big A airmen, meaning anyone who needed it, which was go to bat. And I had one of my leader, immediate leaders was like, okay, you know, we've looked at this. I've got a plan. You're not going to like it, but trust me. And that was the other part of it was the trust me. And cause it was, you're going to go work for the two star and be his aide, which means carry his hat and his bag around. Right. Which is a fighter pilot. You're just like, oh, I'm not, you know, and he was like, repeat after me. I am a volunteer to be the two stars aide. And I'm like, I said, and he's like, congrats, you just got the job. I'm like, you know, my head sank. But I ended up like so many lessons at that moment. And and so what that immediately meant was the two-star stepped in and said, he's not moving because he's now my aide for the next year. So it pushed it off a year to keep me and Kim together because they knew the value of that. Like, you weren't going to lose just me. You're going to lose her too. Um, but but I saw I saw them all in, a, in this effort to just for me, just like I'm a major at this time. I'm just some one of a million fighter pilots, maybe a million, not the right number, but a lot of fighter pilots. And, um, but they, they made this a pretty big Herculean effort to get me into this position to protect me, to make things happen for our family. But I also saw the, the value of that moment of trust me. Just, I know that this sounds painful or this doesn't sound fun or this doesn't sound like, you're going to like it a lot. Trust me. It's the, like, it builds character kind of statement to your kids. Right. Like, and, and, and I like, but that was a huge moment. And then that was the moment that kept me in the air force. And I mean, I would have, I would have been gone. Uh, I would have been probably a part-time guy in the guard, got myself an airline job and whatever. Um, 
Yeah. But so for me, that was a pretty big turning point in, in not just my career, but my life. Cause I, that would have been, that would have been a very hard moment to manage for us as a family too. How old were you at that point? 2006 ish. So 33. Yeah. And were both the boys born at the time? And that was a big factor too, is, (laughs) well, both our boys were born when we were in school, not flying. And like, and that's part of the, the, you know, we had to have a very deliberate plan because when you have two fighter pilots, you know, between deployments and like, if you're a female fighter pilot, you can't fly if you're pregnant. And, you know, like, so, so like our timing, like was well thought out and like going to school together was key to our family plan. And, you know, so, so much of that would have been, uh, would have been completely imploded, um, in that moment. And so, you know, and I don't even know what that would have looked like, you know, the second and third order effects of, of if I had had my hand forced, um, it would have been tough, you know, no doubt we would have made it happen, but, uh, it, it probably wouldn't, have, it would have turned out the way it did. That's for sure. Well, listen, it's been great chatting with you and I really appreciate you making the time to be here and sharing your experience. I mean, I don't know. I learned a lot. No, it was a, it was a pleasure and, uh, you know, I enjoyed chatting and, uh, you know, you're, your topics, you know, for, for your podcast are awesome. They're, they're my favorite things to talk about. So it was a, it was a no brainer when, when you, you asked me to come on, cause it's uh it's just, it's stuff that I'm passionate about. And I love to, to chat with folks about. Well, look, before I let you go, I know I said before I let you go before I want to get from you, like the top three things that you're grateful for. And, and I want one of them to be something that being in the air force has provided you that you don't think you would have otherwise got. Um, well, the top th- n- number one is my family. I mean, I, I said it you know, recently, even though I've been retired for eight, going on 18 months, I, I think <laughs> we just finally did a ceremony last month, um, a joint ceremony. And, you know, it was, it was a thing that I realized that I was told by a, a boss of mine, you know, who said, Hey, at, at the end of it all, at your retirement, if your family's not there with you, then you've failed at the most important thing. And so I'm thankful for a family who's, you know, endured two careers together, you know, and and made sacrifices for me uh, repeatedly. Um, You know, two, I think, um, I think the air force, you know, what the air force probably taught me that I'm thankful for um, is adversity um, and dealing with it. It gave me a lot of it, um, put me in a lot of places that were physically uncomfortable, um, emotionally uncomfortable. I mean, you know, every, you know, thing that can be uncomfortable and comfortable. And, um, and so it taught me to deal with it and, um, and to get the job done and to set those, like we talked about earlier with compartmentalization and all those skill sets that allow you to focus on the task at hand um, and, and realize that it, it really isn't all that bad. Um, and so, um, you know, and, and, uh, the third thing I think is just apropos for, uh, because we're recording this on veterans day is that, um, I'm thankful for all of my fellow veterans that I've served with. Um, and I'm thankful for all our military members who now protect me, uh, as a retired guy. And so, um, I think that that's, that I, 
that experience is just, you know, giving me uh, a different perspective of 25 years in the military. Um, I'm thankful for my time, but I'm most thankful for the people because, um, uh, it, that's, that's what makes it all, all worth it. Um, in the end. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate you. Look, I, it's veterans day. I, I don't know. I'm just so grateful. I'm fortunate enough to have a lot of veterans in my life. And I think it's easy sometimes for us to say, you know, thank you for your service. And, and I do. Um, but most of all, it's just, it's the message that I get from you guys and being able to learn by your experience and all the things that you've had the opportunity to go and the places you've been able to go. And it just seems like all the veterans in my life just seem to freely give that message to me. Um, you know, I don't know if I deserve it or not, but I ask and they're like, yeah, well, look, if you want to get better at doing this thing, here's something you can do. And that's kind of the whole point of this podcast really. It's like, it's just this wealth of knowledge there. And that just, it fills me up with so much gratitude. I mean, there's a lot of people that we've lost, but the ones we have here are still being of service to us every time we talk to them. No, you hit it on the head. It's, it's that notion of service. And that, I think, you know, when you, we talked about that transitioning challenge earlier, I think that that's a big part of it is recognizing that you can continue to serve. Like it, it, you know, service is not just the cloth, right? It's not just the uniform. And, you know, you, you have, you know, that's one of those things like there, there are so many different avenues by which you can continue to serve others and, you know, share, like you said, share experiences. And that's, and it's not constrained to the military. I think this notion of service, I think needs to be wider. Like you said, like with you being someone who's facilitating, you know, uh, a podcast where you're sharing things where if one person today picks up on one thing and goes into tomorrow feeling better and doing better, and being the best version of themselves and, you know, hashtag winning. Right. And so, you know, it's, it is, I mean, what you're doing is serving others. And so I think it's, it's, I think it's just getting more people to think that way that just like, look, you got a skill or something that you can share or you can provide like, you know, it's, it's the greatest thing in the world. And uh, you know, on a day like today, it's, I think it's a, it's hopefully something where people, you know, as much as we're appreciative of, you know, like I always say that, you know, when somebody challenges me on the, you know, I have my standard, thank you for your support. But like, if somebody really wants, it starts peeling the onion with me, I'm like, you know, like when they're like, what are some of the things I can do? I'm like, don't think of it in the like monetary, like it's, it's, it's the gift of sharing. Transaction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't like, like just share your time, share your thoughts, listen to somebody like, you know, like, yeah. you know, just those kind of things. And I, I think if, you know, we, we, we're better as a country with more people who are, you know, service oriented, just, and it doesn't, it, we're not talking about full time, right? Like just find that thing. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, thanks so much for being here. You bet brother. Thanks for having me. It was a, it was a pleasure, pleasure chatting. Thanks for listening to DC local leaders. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on LinkedIn and YouTube by searching DC local leaders on Instagram at DC local leaders or our website, dclocalleaders.com. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you find great podcasts. Don't forget to rate review and subscribe until next time.